Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar, and his co-host, Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Together, Bob and Scott investigate many of the hidden secrets of playing good tennis, as well as offering their expert commentary on professional tennis. Hi, all. It's your host, Bob Chevier, back here on Outside the Lines with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And today we're going to talk a bit about the recently concluded Australian Open there was really so much going on at this tournament. Uh, but one thing that makes it tough, and I know from speaking with my students, the, the huge time change between when we're awake and when they're playing tennis in Australia, it, it actually, I think, gets us quite a few less fans because even though you could record it or you could go to ESPN plus and watch on demand. Not as many people actually do that. And I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Scott, because what happens is they hear the result of the match and then they're no longer well, interested in watching the match. How, how do yeah. you feel? I, I personally have no problem hearing the result and then watching later because I like to see how it happened. What was the actual story? The The result yeah. doesn't really change that much for me. So how do you feel about that? Well, you know, it's a 16-hour difference uh -huh. between New York and uh, uh, and uh, Melbourne. Um, and I do have a little bit of difficulty. I try not to hear the results. It depends on the round and the matches. Uh, you know, later on, I, I sort of like to be the, um, you know, the average kind of viewer where I'm excited, like I have a favorite. Um, and, you know, like I, I want, I wanted the Detroit Lions to beat uh, the San Francisco 49ers. And the way that went down was just so disappointing. But it's, it's always more fun, I think, and more interesting not not to put money on it necessarily, but to have someone you're rooting for. And for whatever reasons, uh, you know, you have a horse in the race. Um, mm -hmm. So I do have but I do the thing I, I did learn since we started doing our podcast so that I could be a little bit more uh, knowledgeable about information coming from uh, any one of the Grand Slams or tournaments that we cover. I do put it on the DVR and I just cover the series and then I go back and I just uh, cherry pick the matches that I want to watch. And I do watch a bunch of them generally. And I do the fast forwarding technique because especially when Djokovic is playing, you know, I just like fast forward while he's like serving. Um, mm -hmm. and that really, that really helps with the uh, time element. So, um, but because we do the podcast, I do like, I did watch, uh, om basically the whole match, uh, of the men's final between, uh, Sinner and Medvedev. So by going, you know, going back there, I did that this morning, you know, what's today, Tuesday. And it was done. That was Sunday morning here. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then that also gives me a chance to, uh, take my time and, and see what's going on. Uh, 
so that we can talk about some of the interesting things that have been happening in these matches. Yeah, so the the first person I wanted to bring up because uh, when she first came on the scene, I was a big time fan of hers, a little bit less over time, but Naomi Osaka made her return to Grand Slam tennis and she was beaten in the first round by Caroline Garcia, who a couple of years ago got up to the top five in the world. Right. Yeah. Good been player. struggling a little bit in the last year, but this was actually a terrible matchup for the first round for Osaka yeah. because Garcia takes no prisoners. She goes for every ball and wants to be on complete offense. And if Osaka has a weakness, it's her ability to defend the court. She was actually playing the ball so beautifully, Osaka. Her her shots had power, depth, control. Everything was going great. Um, but she did have to play too much defense against Garcia, who also served amazingly well. She out-aced Osaka, I think, mm. 15 to 13. So, and I just had one other thing, and I wondered, um, you know, Osaka has been more open, and she's talked about why she's coming back. And her number one reason right now is she wants her daughter to be able to see her win tournaments. Uh, what do you think of that as a motivating factor for a top-level tennis player? Um, yeah, I don't really, I don't really get that too much. Um, I mean, it's it's a a mother-daughter uh, relationship, you know. I guess you could say like father-son um, type thing. Um, it's uh, it's weird though because you know how old is her daughter? Her daughter's only what a couple years old. No, one or just one years old. Right. Um, and uh, and it's funny because when we started the podcast, who did we start out with? Naomi Osaka. That's right. French. That's right. Good memory. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But, uh, you know, but I, I really I really have uh, a little bit of a problem uh, with that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, you know, uh, take it away from her to like want that. But I don't think that that you know, really should be um, or can be the overriding uh, motivation because her daughter, when she's, let's say, four or five, six years old, will maybe be able to appreciate what she's seen on the TV or on the tennis court in a certain way. Uh, and, you know, she'll see her mommy out there competing and everybody clapping for her mommy and she'll be able to you know, uh, uh, you know, have some kind of understanding at that point. So we're talking about, you know, a, a few years down the line. So Osaka better, you know, really get it together quickly uh, because I don't think that there's a lot of time to uh, make that really happen. You know, I mean, she's got to make a comeback. And that's another thing, Bob. Uh, how many times have you seen some difficult comebacks? I think the comebacks for players, not just women who are having children and starting a family. Uh, but I mean, McEnroe tried it and uh, was horrible. Uh, and you've had, a, you know, you, you haven't had too many of the men try it. I mean, the women are doing it like Kim Kleisters did a fantastic comeback after having a child and she won the U.S. Open. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, on her first major tournament, uh, you know, I saw her in the first round of the U.S. Open that year. And in the first round, she beat uh, whatever. Um, and I said to who I was sitting with, I said, Kleisters is playing well enough to win this tournament. And lo and behold, she won the tournament. I mean, she really was strong when mm-hmm. she got back on the court. Well, I would say, though, let's not forget Federer coming back from knee surgery and winning the Australian Open and having a couple match points at Wimbledon. So there was an example of a comeback that happened and was almost like a miracle. He hadn't even played any tournaments and played one exhibition and then he wins the Australian Open. And of course, Nadal has come back. It is Federer, though. I mean, Federer, you know, like... (laughs) <laughs> just he is like a miracle and and look at that you don't want everybody to be having to do miracles to come make comebacks yeah but, but yeah nadal nadal has uh stumbled right well he has stumbled but he's also had some comebacks from pretty right. long layoffs where he's come back to win grand slams so yeah. i would uh, be in his camp to say that maybe this next last this next time coming up the comeback won't be all that successful but he's been through i'd say three or four where he was out for about six months and came back and that's a pretty big layoff for a top top pro i would just go back to osaka and say that uh we know she struggled emotionally going back to that original podcast about the french open couple of years ago uh and to me if you're going to be a champion you have to be playing for yourself is, is the bottom line you can't be right. playing for That's someone was... else whether it's yeah. your parent or your child or your coach you have to be playing for yourself so right. to the extent that whatever it is that makes reaching that place too difficult for her i don't i don't really see much chance of her coming through unless she actually accepts something like i want this for me and right so we'll see yeah. what happens i mean don't you think it's an added pressure because that's what i was getting at when i was talking about it a moment ago was don't you think it's kind of an added pressure um in terms of i want to see my my daughter my child um what i want to see have her see me win tournaments or win matches or whatever it is i think it's just like a a, a burden i think it's just like loading loading something onto an already uh you know difficult and uh stressful uh situation um you know plus she'll be traveling with her right she's going to be a mother i mean you know i saw it with some players who were traveling with their families. They had their wife and, and kids. And, uh, you know, that's one thing. Those, those were the men uh, when I was on the men's circuit, but you know, this month, you know, she's got money so she can pay for nannies and all this stuff, but you're traveling and you have your child with you. Who knows if she's going to have another one? I don't know, but, um, you know, you're just loading, you're just loading up the whole, uh, the whole cart there, uh, in terms of, I think you really need to have, as simple surroundings as you can when you're playing, you know, on mm-hmm. the on the top of the WTA. I, I didn't look at it like that, Scott, but I th- I think you're spot on. I I mean, coaching players over the past, I've said, you know, there's an invisible knapsack that we all carry around, and it contains emotional baggage, and to the extent that you choose to put some heavy rocks in there 
you're <laughs> making your job so, so much, much tougher. Yes, you. I agree completely. Keep yeah. it really nice and simple. So I'd like to switch over to Coco Golf now. She did, after her U.S. Open slam victory, get to the semifinals. Uh, she had a couple matches, though, where she didn't really appear to be firing on all cylinders. But the match with Sabalenka, where she did lose, I did see that. And, and this was one where I read about it before I saw it. And the press coverage was pretty much, um, she got a slow start. Sabalenka fell off the wagon and she got the lead 6-5 in the first set. Then Sabalenka reasserted herself and took the match. Now, that is not what happened in this match whatsoever. Goff did get a little bit of a slow start. She was down 2-5, but Sabalenka was playing fantastically well. And in those games that Sabalenka lost four straight from 2-5 to 6-5 in Coco's favor, Sabalenka didn't fall off the wagon. She made one unforced error per game that she hadn't been making up until that time. She she was still playing well, but now Goff just eked out those do-sad games and actually was serving then in that 6-5 game at 30-love. When her first serve went in, Sabalenka went for it, and her return looked like it was going to float long because it was a slight mishit, and it hit off the baseline, and Coco mishit it. So imagine that ball that was in by an inch at that moment in the match missing. There was, um, and then the following (laughs) point was not a very good point from Coco because she got a short, no pace ball to her forehand and her old problem came right back to the fore. She dumped it in the bottom half of the net Mm. when she had a good look at an approach shot. So, I'm saying she was she was better than a lot of people gave her credit for. And I think she's going to have a good year. Watch out for her. She fought through some matches where she wasn't at her best and found a way to win. You know, sort of the Brad Gilbert, her coach, right. uh, the winning ugly system. Um, but who was it? Who is it? She played uh, before Sabalenka. Um, well, she uh, had Kostyuk. That match. The- the Ukrainian girl. Yeah, that girl. That was, that a, was the match before, right? That was the quarters. Yes. And that was okay. a three setter. Right. I mean, she was lucky to escape that. I'm not even sure you can say she's finding, you know, like that it was uh, an ugly way of winning or, you know, I guess it was ugly. But I mean, she got a lot of help there. Um, I was watching that and, you know, I just thought that. That if she was not getting the level of assistance from her opponent. There was no way she's walking off that court as a winner. I was not impressed um, really with uh, with her performance that day. She just doesn't look, she just doesn't look like she's got a clear vision of, um, of what to do at times in these matches. And, you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I think that it's going to be interesting. You and I will be back here uh, at the French open time. 
and we should uh, we'll be checking in and see uh, you know how the how the the tour is going for her. Um, okay, well, Scott, just to just to throw a little different perspective on that, um, virtually every tennis match played, including at the top levels of tennis, is decided by unforced errors versus winners. Right, and in a way we could translate that to say if you let the opponent miss more than you you win ugly you employing the brad gilbert system so i hear you that there are some points in the score where i don't feel like she has a well-directed game plan that we're how she's gonna try to get from point a to point b right but on the other hand, if you can run like she can, and she is fast as the wind, uh, you're going to win some matches simply by getting the ball back one more time and letting them self-implode yeah. out there during the match. Um, how's so she going to beat? How's she going to beat these top players, though? I mean, that's not going to happen enough at that uh, with the with the uh, you know the Schwantek and Zabalenka and whatever. I mean. Uh, Zabalenka looks like she's starting to like actually mature and calm down uh, and she's putting some things together, you know, and she's got the biggest game of any anybody out there. So, I mean, we're, we're going to see this is a big year for her to prove herself in terms of sustainability. Yeah, uh, but uh, Coco's got such great talent and everything, but I'm just like a, 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 just a, a little worried that she she needs a little bit more direction, a little more guidance, you know, a little bit more. I mean, we're not going to change her forehand. I mean, that's that's not happening. That's what her father says. So that's what they're going with. <laughs> so, so um, going to Sabalenka though. Um, here's an interesting fact for those of you that actually watched the final live. You heard Chris Fowler, who was doing the play-by-play -play commentary, and it was near the end of the second set. Uh, Sabalenka, by the way, won the final 6-3-6-2 over Zheng Chi-Wen. Um, but he says, wow, look at this. Everybody thinks Sabalenka hits winners. She has four forehand winners right now and three backhand winners. She doesn't. Her game is not based on hitting winners. So I went, as difficult as they are to follow, to the statistics website, which you can right. find. And yes, the key difference, and with her power, this is no surprise, Sabalenka won with forced errors, where her shots were making her opponent miss. It wasn't the typical winner that you see, you know, six inches inside the line, no one can touch it. It was, you know, hard. Maybe the person's even waiting right there, but they can't handle the pace, the right. forced error. So the targets, you're talking about maturity on Sabalenka's part. The targets, I think, have definitely matured. And she's playing a little bit safer. You know, it's that old expression, big shots to big spots. She's personifying that. And with her serve, so much bigger than Swatek. I right. can't see Swatek having a chance to beat her the way things are matching up right now. Swatek's serve was successfully attacked by almost every opponent she played. Yeah. So it's a, a different, difficult challenge for her. 
So a couple of other things came up. We're going to get to the men's final, um, which you saw shortly. But Anz Jabour, who was three, mm. two to three years ago, having a tremendous time and get got to a couple yeah. of finals of slams. What? What's going on with her? Well, she played this young uh, Russian girl, Andreeva, in the second round. And Andreeva beat her love and two. Now, Jabour... Uh, to me, the women's tennis, all the players are hitting the ball harder all the time. Jabour is an exception. She has stuck with her mix up the pace and the spin and everything. Shots. And it almost looks like that game is sort of outdated. But the reason I'm bringing up the match is Andreeva in her post-match interview, they said, how did you ever beat a player of this caliber by this score. It's just unheard of. It's just unthinkable. She said, I tried really hard to relax. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way she said it, of course, has its problems, right? But at least she has the idea of making an effort to do whatever breathing or, you know, whatever it is that you can do. To help yourself calm down. At least she's got that idea of getting into into a relaxed state um, and taking control. Because I see, and I think especially I see it in the women, but you see it, it we see it in the men's game too. Mentally, these players do not have control of themselves in these more pressurized moments and everybody's like oh yeah well that's so easy to say you're not under pressure well i've been under pressure plenty of times over the last like 40 or 50 years uh on a on a, a you know an athletic field or a tennis court and the point is eventually you have to take command of your thought process and your emotions and you have to keep it together and know how to um you know, uh, fight against what's sort of natural when you get a lead, especially. Uh, you play well, the other person doesn't play so well, whatever. You have a lead, you're in a big tournament. And now don't fall apart. One of the things I saw in the uh, in the finals of the men's, just a little bit, not to talk about that match, but you know, how we, you and I have talked on this podcast, Bob, about how do you play with different point scores, you know, when the mm -hmm. score is 30, 15 or 15, 30 or 40 love, or, you know, 40, 30, whatever, all those different scores, how do you play? And we we've, we've given everybody like some general formulas in terms of thinking about what you do, play aggressively, play conservatively, play steady, play creatively, whatever. Right. But I see these players, they get, how can you at 30 love at a world-class level, you cannot go and make a double fault at 30 love when you're serving. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, you just can't let yourself mentally slide when the, when the math is in your favor, you've got to get the ball and play, make the other player play. Don't play aggressively per se. You have to play like a rock. When I played, I used to call that rock solid. When you have mm -hmm. 30 love and 30, 15, you're going to play like you're in Las Vegas you are going to not make unforced errors. You're not going to give anything away. And the double fault is the number one worst unforced error. Yeah. So um, to 
delve into this pressure tennis a little bit more. Uh, and this is a sensitive subject. Do you feel that there's a difference across genders in the way the players handle pressure? Um, I, if I had to make a vote, I, I say that basically you, it exists in both the men and the women. Uh, I think right now that the women are showing a little bit more, um, a, a lack of resilience when it comes to these pressurized situations. Um, and, you know, it just, I, I want to watch a couple more uh, big tournaments uh, this year and see how the women hold up because I think that they, they, they need um, more psychological and emotional um, confidence and they need mm -hmm. to be out there and uh, you know, start to become a little bit more impervious and I'm not talking about the the women who are just coming on the circuit or are just starting to do better and whatever. I'm looking at these women who have now gotten themselves up in the ranking. They're in the top 20. I mean, look at what happened to Danielle Collins. Wasn't that like an example that was just Oh, my bizarre? gosh. That was just the example I was going to bring up. She up 4-1 in the third against Swatek, and every single shot slowed down and either made an error or let Swatek gain control of the point just to totally went away from what was working. Well, she lost 20 miles an hour uh, on her, on her forehand. Right. Right. From the, from the time, yeah. the average of the match to the average of uh, when she went up four one. Exactly. Exactly. So and you have, have coaching, I but Bob, you have coaching. If you were not, if you or I were in that, in that, in that coaching box and that situation occurred, there's, there has to be some communication. There has to be some help coming from the box. And then when you see that first game and you see that your player is basically just starting to, 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 to choke like crazy, you have to be able to turn that around because you have time. Well, I'm actually going to give the coach quite a bit of credit because from the very start of the match, he only said one thing when he was yelling out instructions. Yeah. Go for it. And that's how she piled up the lead. But he knew his player so well. He knew she couldn't wait to slow down to <laughs> change a winning game. And that's why he kept yelling it out over and over. And at the end, she really, she stopped listening. She didn't go for it. Yeah. If, if you, you know, this is a situation where if you, you're up 4-1 and you lose 6-4, but you tried to play the same game, you don't have to hang your head when you leave the court, right. but and this other circumstance. And then was... announce that you're going to retire this year. Oh, I she did that. Yeah. Oh, I, I was like, Oh my God, this woman is in the tank. And I like Danielle Collins. I mean, a la the last couple of years have been great to see someone, uh, you know, who's been on the circuit for so long and whatever, like, you know, play some good tennis and get some good results and, and be very positive and everything. I was like, oh, I was like so uh, discouraged by her whole like thing. Okay, so let's just, even though, you know, there's no real way to measure it, let's just <laughs> say we're going to give Bob and Scott uh, the benefit of the doubt and say that the women don't handle pressure as well. So I have two reasons why I think that's the case. Reason number one is that this book, Tennis Science, came out about four or five years ago. And in one of the chapters, uh, the guys that wrote it took high-speed film 
of the top 20 men and the top 20 women in the world and compared the movement of their head through the stroke. And they found that the men kept their heads significantly longer at the point of impact uh, as opposed to uh, the women who had a slight movement out following the ball just at impact. So you know, in terms of matching up to your sweet spot and having confidence, if you're not really lining the ball up the way you need to, and then you add pressure with the fans and the grand slam, you're going to make more mistakes. I think it's that simple. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Because you have, you know, you're getting motions in there that uh, are not helping you, uh, you know, produce your strokes, their interference, you get you got more interference, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So and I have a second one also, at least in terms of the grand slams. And we all know that depending upon the score, different points have different values. You just mentioned a little while ago how we play a little differently depending upon the score. Right. Uh, and we really can't, listeners, go into details about exactly what's different because we don't know the matchup, et cetera. But suffice it to say that we don't play all points the same. Um, but here's one thing that's absolutely true. In two out of three sets, each point is worth more than it is in three out of five sets. Because in three out of five, you can mess up for quite a while and still have room to come back. So in a way, women's women's tennis is under more pressure. For you all listeners to visualize right. this, imagine a one-point tournament where if you win right. the one point, you move on. If you lose, right. you're out of the draw. Right. Okay. Well, um, in theory, yeah. I could win one of those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I mean, that's what used to happen with tiebreakers and stuff. We used to come down to like one point wins the match now. Yes. But, uh, but what if you're playing an eight game pro set or a 10 game pro set, not talking about professional tennis, but, you know, in other in other tournaments and stuff, sometimes you have to do that. That becomes like those first three or four games become so much more important than when you're playing two out of three sets. Um, oh, totally. I, and, I hated pro and, set format. Yeah. And people and people like just get down, you know, my student, I'm saying you can't get down. You can't get down in, in, in that pro set. You have to you have to either keep it even or get ahead uh, because, you you know, you don't have any time to come back. Right. Right. So there was a really interesting piece in The New York Times, Scott, in uh, as a prelude to the Sinner Djokovic semifinal. And what it did was it went back. They had played already three times within the last three or four months. It went back to a match that Sinner won, and then it contrasted it with a match that Djokovic won. And they brought in two new statistics. One is called conversions. And what the AI who's watching the film is measuring is when you have an advantage in the point, how at what percentage of the time do you go on to actually win the point once you have the advantage right. and on the flip side there's a category called steals where you fall behind in the point how often do you successfully come back and steal that point from your opponent when you really should have been beaten 
So what was interesting was in the match where Djokovic lost, his conversions were like 54. And in the match where he won, he was up to 71%. So he was taking a more aggressive stance to win that match. And yet I saw quite a bit of the semifinal. I feel like he was relatively passive in that match and not really taking it to his to center the way he needed to if he was going to win. And these stats seem to tell, here's what you need to do. You should know what you need to do. Right. Do you have any feelings on that? Yeah, like a little bit, because I did go back and watch highlights and stuff. Um, and what struck me there was that it was even more important in terms of making those conversions, because he was like prone to making so many more errors. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I mean, when's the last time you saw, I'll tell you the last time I saw him play like that with those kinds of errors in a big match. And that was against Medvedev at the open. When, when he could have won he, the grand slam. He could have won the grand slam and Rod Laver was sitting in the audience waiting to come down and give him that trophy. And, uh, and, and, oh my God, that was just so much pressure on him and just obviously kind of destroyed his mental stability because that's the last time that I saw him play um, in such a way as he did, uh, you know, in, in, in this tournament. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that conversion thing is a great tool and mm -hmm. I think that you have to maximize that. And that would have, that would have helped him overcome like some of the unforced errors because he's just giving away points but if he's converting all of the points that he's playing well and getting an advantage and he's winning those points uh and converting at a higher percentage i think he could probably come out of some matches that he was struggling with but again could 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 win you know so scott for our listeners i feel like the conversion steal uh, framework is very helpful for them it, when they attempt to understand their own game and what's happening when they're playing matches. A clear example is when someone uh, at the end of a point will mutter out loud, I had him. Okay. Well, no, in tennis, you don't have anything until the point is actually over. Yeah. So there is no, I had him. And so being able to identify your conversion versus steal, like going back to <clears throat> Naomi Osaka for a second, my best guess if the stats were out there is that she might have had two steals in the entire match because her defensive skills, she couldn't change direction and get to the ball well enough to make a steal. Once right. she fell behind in the point, point was over. Right, okay. right. You can't play pro tennis without the ability to steal at least a few points. And for you, again, listeners, if you're not fast, work on your anticipation. Then maybe you can be there as a surprise to someone who thinks they've hit the perfect ball, but you're waiting right there to make a reply. Keep working on that anticipation. So have, I have one have other... We have I'm a few sorry, minutes Scott. left, Bob. Do you want to? Um, I just wanted to really quick say a couple of things about the men's final. In that, oh please, um, what was very impressive, um, especially from Sinner, was that he served very, very well, 
And he had first serves, just like Medvedev did also, first serves at certain times that really got him out of trouble and uh, and helped him. And he served very, very smart. And he even had a second serve ace late, yeah. late in, the, in the match, right? And the other thing is his return of serve was driving Medvedev crazy because a lot of balls that never come back from other players, Sinner and on match point. He had a return that he got in play that he ended up winning the match on. Um, and and his return of serve helped him get stay in there to break Medvedev uh, because Medvedev gets way too many, you know, free points off mm -hmm. a very good serve that he has. Right. So, so what was the other, what was the last thing you wanted to hit? We have like a minute. Oh, I just wanted to hit if you got to watch Alcaraz at all he, you know he Zverev beat him in the quarterfinals in four sets right I saw part of that it was interesting that his coach and his mentor um Juan Carlos Ferrero was recovering from knee surgery and was right. not in the stands in person right. and I wonder if you thought that that had some influence on his ability to stay focused I, I would have to say yes, um, even though all the rhetoric and all the verbiage was, no, it doesn't make any difference. I'm fine. I have uh, uh, this other guy, uh, the other Spaniard, uh, I don't remember his name, uh, with me. Um, so, uh, no, I'm fine. Everything is good. And But I think that it inevitably has to have some kind of effect. I would agree completely. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you missed some of the Australian, I hope we filled you in a little bit more so that uh, you feel like you know what was going on and hope you'll tune in again to Outside the Lines. And I guess the final thing I would say is any topics you'd like to hear about, send us an email. We'd be glad to do a podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Bob.